With a website, you're afforded a lot of luxuries that you aren't with, with other applications and programs. It's all in one place. So you have a hub, a store of content, a library of propaganda, key contact addresses. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're looking into terrorist-operated websites, or TOWs, with the help of my guests, Ajith Francis, Director of the Data and Jurisdiction Programme at the Internet and Jurisdiction Policy Network, and Rory, an Open Source Intelligence Analyst at Tech Against Terrorism. We'll be investigating what TOWs are, why they're a threat, and what can be done to combat them. Firstly, what are terrorist-operated websites? Let's hear from Rory. They're websites or internet-based locations normally operated by terrorist or violent extremist actors. Terrorist-operated websites are used by terrorist and violent extremist actors for the same purpose, largely, as any other internet-facing application. So this can range from communication to organization to dissemination of uh, propaganda or recruitment and sometimes funding and financing. So in terms of the, the functions of a terrorist operated website or a TOW, it's largely just to enable terrorist actors and the organizations they are part of to, to continue to have a foothold on the internet. So let's build on why terrorist and violent extremists choose to use websites. What specific features appeal to them? As Rory explains, websites provide a stable platform that makes propaganda dissemination, recruitment and communication relatively easy. So terrorist and violent extremists use websites um, largely, I would say, because it gives them an aspect of control that they may not have using other internet facing applications or programs. So, for example, a messaging app. You know, their chat's only going to stay up there for as long as it's undetected or, you know, competently removed. So that could be alerting, for example, through tech and terrorism, or it could be through law enforcement or a tech company themselves. So that may be why they might not be uh, so inclined to use an application. However, with a website, there's elements of control that you can have in, in using it that you don't get with other internet facing programs and, and apps. It's just easier to have a, a semblance of control and you, you, for example, could get your website hosted in a certain place in the world, in a particular geography, for example, where they may not respond to jurisdictional takedown requests from other countries. So there's, there's one example. Another example is just, it's, it's all centralized. It's all in one place. So you have a hub, you have a, a store of content, a library of propaganda, key contact addresses, potentially even fundraising or financing aspects that are more you know, more difficult to achieve with, with, you know, options that aren't necessarily websites. Like I said, with, with chats, for example, that only goes so far, you know, some mobile apps will only let you have a certain amount of members per chat. So the audience reach is, is limited. So with a, with a website, you're afforded a lot of luxuries that you aren't with, with other applications and programs. In terms of features, I mean, obviously there's a lot you can do with a website. Anything can be done with a website really. But when we released a report on this earlier this year in January, we defined some really interesting statistics. So, for example, 91% of TOWs, so that's terrorist-operated websites, in this data set included some component of audiovisual propaganda. So that could be a video, it could be a propaganda poster, it could be some photo sets, for example. Those are really popular with Islamic State actors. You know, every week they'll release like a, a photo set of, of images, you know, documenting what they've been up to in the past seven days, for example. 
73% of this as well includes some historic content. So that kind of alludes to another function or feature that we see quite frequently in terrorist operated websites, which is an archive. Now, of course, that's really useful because it allows terrorist website operators to essentially grab content and then disseminate it further if they so require. If they don't, it's still on the website and you can just look at it anyway. So again, it gives options and, and gives control, which I think is a theme we'll probably come back to quite often throughout this pod. Then, as I alluded to earlier as well, points of contact um, are really valuable, obviously, for terrorists using the internet because it allows for recruitment and discussion that you might not be afforded with other apps. So 50%, 57%, sorry, of the sites we were looking at in that report included a contact address form. That's still around now. I quite frequently in my role here at Tech and Terrorism monitor terrorist operator websites. A lot of them have contact addresses. Now that, of course, has quite interesting implications in terms of recruitment and organization, which again, just, just allows more options for, for terrorists seeking to, to exploit internet services. And another aspect as well, and this is quite interesting here because this was more likely in the violent far right, but we do see this as a feature on terrorist operated websites as merchandise and, and fundraising, which of course, you know, it introduces a completely new aspect of that, which is, you know, counter-terrorist financing. That's, a, that's another aspect that needs to be considered when you're looking at um, projects like these and, 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 you know, how terrorists use the internet. But merchandise is quite popular. We see that quite a lot um, with the violent far right terrorist operated websites will have a set of you know t-shirts or, or albums for example um or podcast recordings or flags or, or badges or anything like that can be sold on these websites and of course you don't know where the money goes when you win when it's purchased but you would you would have to assume that that money goes somewhere you don't want it to so there's, there's a really interesting aspect of financing that we see there as Rory touched upon there, terrorist-operated websites are used in different ways by different terrorist groups and ideologies. For example, Islamic State has a lot of supporter-run websites that aren't necessarily operated by designated terrorist organizations, but are created and maintained in support of them. Meanwhile, violent far-right-linked websites are much more likely to be used for fundraising and selling merchandise. It's also worth mentioning here that broad improvements in online moderation of terrorist content on mainstream social media has pushed terrorist and violent extremists onto smaller, more niched online spaces, and many terrorist actors have grown more reliant on website infrastructure. But why are terrorist-operated websites in particular such a big threat within the wider online ecosystem? Here's Rory again. It's harder to harder to, to prevent, I guess, which kind of you know exacerbates the problem. And you know, as I said earlier, it allows them to communicate, to organise, you know, to create and disseminate uh, centrally produced propaganda. It lets them recruit and it lets them you know generate funds, which can be used to finance terrorist activities. So it's a big threat because it does all of the things that you would see across the web, but in in one place largely. Whereas, for example, you know, terrorist actors exploiting a chat service can only do a few of those things. They can op- they can disseminate propaganda, but they can only do it to say fifty thousand members. However, a website, as you know, obviously doesn't have limits on visitors. Recruitment can be done on a messaging app, but it's done very privately and you know very securely and in a, in a manner which probably doesn't optimize it. But if it's on a website, anybody can fire an email off, so you, you just get a larger list. Funding and financing, for example, if you can include payment methods or, you know, for example, like a, a Bitcoin address, it's just a lot easier to find it all. So it's centralized, it's, it's all stored in and organized in, in one place. So that's one example of why it's such a big threat. But it's also a big threat because you can take these websites down, but they'll pop up again elsewhere. But to go back to like the, the, the you know, the Islamic State supporter generated translated content, 
these websites will, you know, we'll see them pop up for like a, a couple of weeks or a month or two, and then they'll go down and we'll find exactly the same site somewhere else on the internet on a different IP address on a different range hosted in an entirely different geography with, with just a slightly different URL, but the, the website is the same. So you can template sites and you can, and you can save them and you, and they can be disrupted, but they can just pop up elsewhere. So there's, there's a lot of things to deal with. And of course, you know, the decentralized web is, is, is going to become a, a very big, very big component of terrorist operated websites as well, because it's becoming increasingly possible to create and host content on websites that are, you know, decentralized from, from centrally located servers, which again, makes it incredibly difficult to take down, or you could exploit bulletproof hosting, for example, you know, and you, and use a hosting provider that has, you know, verifiably shown over the years that they're not going to respond to the takedown request from, from anybody because they know that there's a, there's a market there to, to make money from that. So it's a big threat because it does all of these things, but it's, it's an increasingly bigger threat because it's increasingly difficult to actually tackle them. As Rory discussed there, another factor that makes tackling terrorist operator websites so difficult is something called adversarial shift. This is the idea that terrorist and violent extremists are flexible and will adapt their behaviors in response to improved content moderation. So for example, if their websites are taken down, they will find somewhere else to host it, such as the dark or decentralized web. Tech and terrorism is doing an increasing amount of work looking at the decentralized web, otherwise known as the D-Web and, and Web3. And we are seeing terrorist users you know, exploiting the D-Web and it offers a lot of things that traditional web services don't. So decentralized is, is, is the key word here you could have uh, content for example stored on on the blockchain that can be removed from websites but can never be removed from the blockchain so you know theoretically it can be re-uploaded elsewhere you could have websites stored on networks that are completely isolated from centrally controlled servers and that makes the problem tougher really the problem grows in that sense because Yes, for now, the D-Web is, is, is still growing. It's still in like a relative stage of infancy. And because of that, the capability to reach out to an audience is, is, is smaller. But that technical sophistication is growing every day. And we're seeing terrorist users exploiting the D-Web more and more as the weeks go on. So their technical understanding of it is, is, is growing. And because of that, we need to understand how this adversarial shift is, is going to represent itself, you know, say a couple of months even a couple of years down down the line so ensuring that we have the strategies in in place is absolutely crucial so what are we doing at tech against terrorism to combat this threat well as rory explains we published a report earlier this year which found that global terrorist and violent extremist actors are running at least 198 websites on the surface web From a representative sample of just 33 of these sites, we found the total average monthly visits was 1.54 million, demonstrating their massive audience reach. We've been working on terrorist operated websites for for a while. As I said, we released our most recent report in January, which outlined the threat. That threat has since maintained and arguably grown since that report. We work when we can with internet service providers and DNS providers, for example, to identify and, and tackle terrorist-operated websites, of course, if you, if you can work with internet service providers, that's stopping the problem at the root because you can just essentially turn the power off. As I said earlier, that problem is going to become different when decentralized um, technologies continue to emerge. But we're working on this constantly. We're, we're monitoring. We track over 200 terrorist-operated websites, and we are working 
to develop a new strategy to, to help mitigate and tackle against these in the near future. So, you know, we released one report this year, but the, the work has, has remained and it stayed constant. And that's, you know, through our open source intelligence work, but it's also crucially through our research team's work and also through policy guidance and support, which which is, is tailored to to help whoever we're working with tackle the threat most efficiently. So that could be, for example, giving practical advice, but it could also be, for example, policy suggestions and, and you know, ensuring that terms of service accurately reflect the terrorist exploitation of their services is, you know, evidently not allowed and, you know, violates their, their terms of service. So we, we do a lot across different work streams, but that work's only going to increase because this threat is, is, is you know, at the very least maintaining and, you know, likely growing. For example, if, say, terrorist actors online are being uh, pushed off of certain applications, they might fall back to the websites, you know, and so that, that problem just grows and grows and grows. Um, it's almost like a downward spiral of tackling it in one location of the internet. The problem grows elsewhere. So we need to make sure that we have like a really broad approach. So in a way, we're tackling POWs not only through like directly monitoring and, and you know, trying to take them down where possible, but also ensuring that other uh, aspects of the internet are as well protected and aware of the threat as they can be. In 2021, Tech Against Terrorism facilitated the removal of 16 terrorist-operated websites. However, locating these sites and persuading infrastructure providers to remove them is not always easy. AGIS role at the Internet Jurisdiction and Policy Network involves bringing together more than 400 key entities from governments, the world's largest internet companies, tech operators, civil society groups, academia, and international organizations. He explains why it's so difficult to remove websites that host harmful content, such as terrorist-operated websites. One of the key challenges with addressing harmful content on the internet is the problem with definitions. How do you define harmful content? Who defines it? Who evaluates it and who enforces it? This is particularly relevant when we talk about a global or a transnational resource like the internet. We even have this, have this challenge with illegality for that matter. Content that is illegal in one jurisdiction may actually be legal in another. So acting at a global or a transnational level is quite complicated in the absence of set definitions of, that are collectively understood across jurisdictions. This is also relevant when we are defining the normative basis on which action is being taken, that is whether if it's based on national law, and if it is based on national law, then there's a question of extraterritoriality of, of such an action and the risk of over-censorship by, by countries and what content can be accessed in other jurisdictions. When it comes to terms of service, there's a question of what is the normative basis for such action? Uh, where does the, the terms of service sort of gather its normative structure and normative basis to actually define whether something is harmful or not? And it, it lacks often a defined set of criteria and action by any platform would have global implications by default. With regards to also harmful content, there's the question of, of sort of whether content is, is manifestly abusive or harmful or is it much more complicated, you know? And this, this is easy to define when it's sort of outrightly and manifestly abusive. Say, for example, it has, there's a website or a, or a, or a platform that's hosting videos of violent crimes. But at the same time, there's a fine line between outright terrorist activities and glorification of promotion, which may not necessarily be the, have this carry the same weight as actual terrorist content. And there's a question of free speech that arises there. There's a question of evaluation. 
in terms of how do you evaluate those the, that particular piece of content or that particular website. Here, I combine both the notion of acting at the websites and it particularly on the on the harmful nature of it, and it creates creates a bit of a quagmire where often actors are hesitant, particularly on the infrastructure uh, uh, stack to act because there is no clarity on whether they should be acting on any types of abuse, all types of abuse, or even specific types of abuse, given that that might not necessarily be illegal across all jurisdictions. Currently, there's no unified global approach to tackle terrorist-operated websites. And as Adrith explains, a lack of transnational cooperation is why the internet in general is so difficult to govern. Both Climate issues and internet governance are sort of the few pure transnational challenges that we face as a collective society. And in that sense, the internet is really a public commons or a common good. And because it is a public commons or a common good, it suffers from the tragedy of the commons, where actors sort of act for their own self-benefit instead of working towards a collective goal or vision in terms of the governance of it. The way I see it on the internet, there are three normative bases. On the one hand, there are countries and the laws that they they sort of enact as one normative structure and normative basis. There are also platforms in terms of service as another. And then you have users and their rights as the third. And there are very few spaces where these three normative sources come together to define collective rules rather than actually impose their will on each other. And I think this is one of the, from an architecture and a framework perspective, one of the key cruxes of, of, of the internet. Adding to this also, we don't have institutions at the moment that sort of can deal with transnational governance. Uh, we do have entities like the UN, but they're sort of much more traditional and, and they don't have the ability to develop processes and implement processes that need to take into account the different stakeholders and the geographic diversity that we have. When it comes to disrupting terrorist operated websites, Rory says collaboration between a wide range of stakeholders is key. Largely consensus i would say is, is is the best thing you can do so if that means getting in a room and you know understanding what the threat is with say policymakers and tech companies and governments and civil society and law enforcement and all of those bodies coming together to to understand how a threat actually works and then also how each you know respective body can can help each other to deal with it then that's that's one example I think all of it starts with consensus, to be honest. So just understanding at a base level where the, where the problem lies and how that problem can be addressed. But then that expands on into, you know, cross-industry and cross-sectoral approaches. So that could be workshops, it could be conventions. All of these things, ideas are born, you know, and they, they, they develop into, you know, actionable plans. So largely it's just, you know, it sounds, sounds so reductionist, but it is true, it's, it's, it's working together. And it's making sure that, you know, additionally, communication is always there. Um, having a clear and open line of communication between organizations such as ours and tech companies is, you know, obviously through TAT's existence, proven to be incredibly beneficial. This isn't just across, you know, internet website service providers and hosting providers. It's across all aspects of, of technology um, and internet facing uh, applications. So, you know, ensuring that understanding how these threats exist and pushing a consensus between organizations such as ours and also, you know, the government and authorities, but, you know, crucially ensuring that the tech companies themselves understand how they're being exploited. Ajith agrees there needs to be a clear and consistent consensus across the board. With multi-stakeholderism in general, there is a need for 
for independent transnational institutions that can facilitate processes and build actually binding tools and solutions and criteria and thresholds and to do it in a very agile and transparent process, particularly focusing on, you know, defining a global set of principles uh, that can particularly be catered towards specific types of uh, abuse or looking at specific types of actors and what that could mean to act at, that, at their level. And the implementation of these principles could be at a national or a platform level, but it provides an, an sort of a, an empowering framework that allows the different actors to sort of be very clear and cognizant of what does it mean to actually act and what do you need to define to justify acting at that particular level. And that also provides transparency and clarity to users as well to know why that particular piece of content or their website might have been taken down and have avenues for recourse if they think that that's been done in a, uh, in a difficult and, and, and transparent manner. The notion of recourse becomes extremely important because as you take down content or websites, you still need to have the avenue of being able to, if this was done in probably in error, to sort of have the avenue to to actually contest a particular action to say if this was not necessarily terrorist content, because we have to understand that there are on the internet there are global norms and there are also global cultural values and different ideologies that come together, and we need to have systems and structures that sort of are cognizant and aware of the different contexts and the different sort of policy narratives and cultural narratives that are that are taking place around the world. As of today, infrastructure providers are often reluctant or unable to act on content moderation issues, such as terrorist content, for a number of valid reasons. They largely provide a global service or an infrastructure that's sort of largely global. Um, so there's the question of what is the legal basis to actually act? Is it, you know, based on national law, one country where the operator is based or in the absence of, of that, what is the other avenue to act on to sort of take down a particular website globally? Entities that are providing an infrastructure service do not have the capacity to actually evaluate whether a piece of content or a particular website is actually, is it terrorism? Is it, you know, is it glorification of terrorism or is it free speech? They don't have the capacity and that's a particular vacuum that that's actually uh, difficult. I think increasingly there's also the question of, you know, we talk about the internet stack as largely uh, a technical stack with the access layer, the, the protocol layer. Increasingly, there's a conversation around trying to define what the content layer could look like or the content stack could look like, particularly, you know, going to looking at platforms as the first sort of layer, which are sort of building their own terms of service guide and community guidelines basis to actually remediate uh, offensive or harmful content or even illegal content. You have increasingly site operators and hosting providers and cloud service providers that are also sort of getting into the game by defining. We've seen just last week or last month, I think Cloudflare taking action on a particular website by suspending services to a particular website. So there is this, this notion of increasingly trying to define what the content stack is and trying to define an escalation path. But all of that has to also be subsequently supported by supporting evidence. And there needs to be a common consensus on what that evidence should look like. And what is the criteria and threshold to act at each layer of that particular context? Here at Tech Against Terrorism, we recommend that governments and infrastructure providers come together to create a strategy to disrupt terrorist-operated websites whilst respecting human rights. And we'll continue to work with them to develop solutions to this growing threat. Meanwhile, our open source intelligence analysts will continue to monitor and alert terrorist-operated websites to infrastructure providers, facilitating their removal where appropriate. A huge thank you to Ajith Francis and Rory for their input in today's episode. If you want to read our report on the threat of terrorist and violent extremist operated websites, we've provided a link in the episode notes. 
To learn more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism. I'm Anne Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. This is an OG podcast production. Executive producer is Archie McFarlane. Produced and edited by Philip Aguiu. Sound design by Oli Guiu. Music by Rowan Bishop.